When Jobs left Apple in 1985 to start another computer company from scratch, the next in its name referred to Steve Jobs' next bid to shape history, to present to a grateful world the next big thing. Intermittently, the world had heard from him and his company in press releases or in stage events for the media. But though eight years had passed and the fire of ambition burned as brightly as in Jobs as ever, another business miracle had yet to materialize. Reporters who wrote about Next would often forget when exactly Next had been founded, and as late as 1992 would still refer to Next as a company that was two or three years old, an error that Jobs, of course, was happy to let stand uncorrected. The less attention paid to his failures to repeat at Next, his earlier success at Apple, the more attention he could direct towards Next's future, clean and untarnished, always bright with possibility. Better to look anywhere but to past record, where Jobs' attempt to build a profitable rival to Apple had led him from one strategy to another, from blunder to blunder, disaster to disaster. What makes his next story especially intriguing, however, is the gullibility of many others who lent money, careers, and prestige to Steve Jobs' quest. The greater portion of investment capital came not from Jobs' own pocket, but from that of others. The amount of money that was sunk into the next venture made it a story for the history books, but not in the way that Jobs intended. Well over $250 million of capital and royalties disappeared in Next, without a penny of net profit to show for the investment. Next dismal skein of business misjudgments threatened to go down in the books as the most expensive flop in the history of entrepreneurship. Okay, so that was from the introduction of the book that I read this week and the one I'm going to be talking to you about today, which is Steve Jobs and the Next Big Thing by Randall Strauss. So I guess I should start right at the beginning. This is going to be one of the most bizarre podcasts that I've ever done because I don't think, I think there's only one like good idea <laughs> Um, in the entire that you get from reading the entire book and um, that that makes a lot of sense when you think about the book let me grab it real quick was published in 1993 so at the time the author is writing this um, he's burned through as he just said 208 years and 250 million dollars in capital and the book ends with um, the decision uh, by Steve Jobs uh, it's not even by Steve Jobs, it was forced on him, which I guess I'll get to uh, later on, to abandon manufacturing hardware and just focus on um, the next step operating system. So that that's 93. And so as you can imagine, if you study, if you just look at the history of Next from the time it was founded to 1983, it's a giant failure. We know because uh, we have the benefit of hindsight that the author did not, that about four years later, Steve Jobs somehow convinces Gil Emilio uh, the CEO at the time of Apple, to buy Next for $450 million, which, of course, leads him to uh, uh, running uh, Apple for years, uh, like a year later. Now, I do want to say one thing, though, because this is the fourth podcast, uh, the fourth podcast I've done on Steve Jobs. So last week, um, if I could, I guess, before I get jump into the book, and I'll just say this real quick, and then we'll get into the book, is... Every single one of the four books that I've read, not including the two um, that I do for the on the reviewer only podcast feed, which was just about product design at Apple, which uh, is not 
necessarily just to focus on Steve Jobs. But I guess what I'm saying is if all four of the books, so you have Return to the Little Kingdom, um, then you have The Next Big Thing, then you have Steve Jobs by Isaacson, and then you have Becoming Steve Jobs. If I could do it over again, I would read all of them, but I would do it in the order um, of the time period that they study. So I'd start with the book I did last week, which is Return to the Little Kingdom, because what's fascinating about that is the, the subtitle is Steve Jobs, The Creation of Apple and How It Changed the World. It focuses on uh, a hugely successful company right at the beginning. So focus on the first few years of Apple. So if you haven't heard that podcast, listen to it because I think it's good because then you, you have an understanding of what happens, like what happens when you, tr- you build a truly revolutionary product and it takes off like the Apple II computer did. Okay. So that was really interesting because it only focused on the first like seven years of Apple's corporate history. Now this book, it only focuses on eight years of next history, and it's the opposite lesson. What happens when you have a product that no one wants to buy, which is what the next computer was? And then I would read the two other books, Steve Jobs and then Becoming Steve Jobs, because it's more of like a it's a more of a, a typical biography. It, it takes his life in in totality. In totality, I think is the word I'm looking for. Okay, so I just wanted to put that out there. I'm gonna jump right in. We're gonna still learn a lot. Um, but most of it is, you know, studying the, the, the decisions and the strategies that Steve Jobs um, decided to go with and realizing, like, basically learning not, what not to do. So um, going back into the introduction of the book, which has tons of really interesting information um, for us. So uh, it, it's a, next is a private company. Um, they take about three years from the, the time it was founded before they actually have a product. And... As such, Steve had to do like uh, they kind of compare. I think the author compares him to like the Wizard of Oz, like the man behind the curtain, like kind of only letting you see what you wanted to see, but it's not a clear picture. And there's really no way for me to to characterize this as other than just blatant lying. And it's something that still goes on to this day, which is I find interesting. I was just reading this article about um, the company WeWork which is still private and they, they come up with like their own way to determine. I think it's like community adjusted earnings before it, just like a made up metric. Um, again, they got a lot of flack uh, on Twitter and otherwise for doing so, but that's not really new. Um, Steve Jobs was making up his own metrics and this is an example of that. So companies making up profits by removing expenses is nothing new. That's the note I left myself. And it said the profits that next wanted the world to notice were an accounting phantom and excluded interest payments for loans. Next had a loss for the quarter. Um, Next did not. And uh, so they're they're saying, hey, we had our first profitable quarter. So this is just the introduction. We're going to go back. uh, So he's he's giving us like a, you know, general, like kind of like a summary for the book, if you will. And then we're going to go back in time uh, before they even have a product. But he says next did not reveal uh, that for the year, the company had fallen about $40 million short of break even. So let me give you context here. He says, hey, look, Next had our first ever profitable quarter. They, Steve was very, like a master at, you know, for lack of a better word, manipulation, and especially manipulating the press and like the public image of the company, even though it was doing poorly for the, the well, for basically all of its existence. He would highlight, you know, things like this. Like, oh, we had a first profitable quarter. No, you didn't because you, did, you, you didn't, you excluded legitimate uh, expenses that your company has. But not only that, who gives, who really cares if you have a one quarter that's profitable and you lost 40 million for the year? And again, that they, to some people that may not seem like a, a relatively big deal in isolation, but it, to me, it is a big deal because the problem is like, the problem occurs when you actually, when the actual com- company believes in bullshit. And that's exactly what happened with Next. So it says, Next management was so persuasive, 
in its denials of recent or imminent change and its serene, and in, in its serene pronouncements about profits that it fooled not only the public again that was Jobs' objective I would I would uh, guess and he says but also the company's own employees so that's a really big problem because um, now the, auth the author's talking about what what's going to happen a few years uh, in advance from this point he says hence the news that leaked on Tuesday February 9th caught almost everyone by surprise. And this is how the book ends. The company was immediately abandoning computer manufacturing and laying off 330 of its 500 employees, cutting not only in manufacturing and design, but also in sales, marketing, and administration. Many, and this is so messed up, many of the affected employees learned of the layoffs in a fashion that made awful news all the worse. From the radio, the day would be remembered by victims and survivors alike as Black Tuesday. Here is a company that could claim that its business was healthy and profitable one moment, then announce, again, that's, that's what it's saying to the public, right? Then announce the abandonment of its sole existing source of revenue, the hardware, and the decimation of more than 60% of its workforce, and then reassert with innocent equanimity that it was simply capitalizing on its assets. Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs offered no explanations of the discrepancy between the earliest sanguine announcements and the apparent need to change direction radically. He directed attention forward to the future, to the beckoning opportunity of leading next into the ranks of first-tier software companies. And that's interesting that he uses the word first-tier software company because at the very beginning when he was starting next and recruiting all the people, he said he wanted to be a first-tier hardware company. So now that he completely changed. This actually was a decision. The, the right decision to make. Um, unfortunately, it didn't come from Steve Jobs. It kind of was forced on him from uh, outside, from not only from uh, employees who, who kept badgering, hey, we need the, the market has spoken, the hardware is not going to sell. We need to actually, the one thing we've actually built that has value is the operating system. So he had internal pressure and then external pressure from like people like Andy Grove, uh, who was leading Intel at the time, which I'll obviously tell you more about. Um, okay, so the reminder here, Again, my goal with this podcast is not—it's not to criticize the business decisions of other people. Like I'm—we're doing this uh, purpose, like the ex explicit purpose of this podcast is for like educational purposes, right? But it's not like a negative thing. Like to me, this was very um, like because you know Steve Jobs—we don't have to worry about his place in in, in history. Like he he came back in and, and led the company that created the most successful consumer product of all time. Um, but what I find motivating or inspiring is that again, what I always say is like these, these people are not idols like they're flawed just like you and I and the very fact that we have an entire book 400 pages dedicated to, of mistakes to somebody like the, the mistakes are not fatal um, like everybody is capable of making mistakes so like even great entrepreneurs uh, are prone to strategic mistakes um, I always go back to what Mark Andreessen describes, like the, the, the act of starting a company. And he says it's a complex adaptive system. These things behave in ways that are unpredictable. They're not just going to line up with your vision. Like your vision, once it interacts with the real world, which is exactly what, what the book is about, like Steve Jobs' vision for next, and then was completely different than, what it, than the, like when it interacted with the, uh, the real world, what the result was. So I think that the main takeaway for the book for me is like, okay, well, listen, you can make mistakes if you, as long as you learn from them, which it took Steve Jobs many years to. And if you look back at how he, how he talked later on in his life, he says, listen, man, I got hit in the, He calls get, going, getting fired from Apple and having to start next, getting head in, hit in the head with a brick. Um, but he's like, it's probably the best thing I needed because you are going to see like his, 
there, there's a difference between like being confident and then Steve Jobs level of confidence, which I'm going to pull out some quotes in the book that are just jaw dropping. Um, but anyways, let me jump back into this part where I left a note that says, listen, even great entrepreneurs are prone to strategic, strategic mistakes. And um, the, the very founding of Next, what the product they decided to build was a strategic mistake. The market they went after was a strategic mistake. How they managed their resources was a strategic mistake, like just over and over again. Um, it's it's it it's almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like the idea that you have somebody as 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 skilled as Steve Jobs was later in his life is the same person as the 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 person being described in this book. Which again, I think Randall Strauss said, okay, the you know it's it's clear next is a it's going to be a failure no matter what. He wound up being wrong about that, but he was right about uh, making that decision at that time based on the information. I can understand why he reached that conclusion after you finished the book. All right, so it says, even with an accelerated schedule, Next still found itself in an unenviable predicament. The company pulled out of the computer business before it had its replacement product, the Intel software, ready for sale. They're saying they're going to create before... Of course, you know Steve Jobs' mo. You most likely do that he wants to control the hardware and the software. He would not write soft. He would not make next compatible uh, next software compatible with other machines. Eventually, that's the exact decision that he's doing. So that's what we're talking about. He did a deal with Intel um, to do that. To do that. So it says all it had to, uh, to offer in the interim was the older version of the software they ran only on next computers. The only potential customers that is those who owned a computer that could actually run it had already been given the software when they purchased the machine. So clearly that's not, he didn't, he did not uh, decide to do this well in advance. He was forced into this decision when the company was running out of resources, basically. Next was an eight-year-old company that was attempting the most awkward of all possible transitions, going months without a single revenue-producing product. Hard to argue this is like a worse position the company could be in. Um, this is a random line that I think is really interesting. Um, the, so the author compares and contrasts what's happening with St- in Steve Jobs' life with other people in the computer industry, like Sun, uh, the, the huge success of uh, Sun Microsystems. Um, there's actually an entire chapter I was thinking about doing like a standalone podcast because the, there's one chapter that the author compares uh, the decisions by Next and he compares and contrasts it with uh their main competitor, or I guess the the one dominating the the workstation industry, which is Sun Microsystems at the time, I might still do that. It, it's very fascinating. But they also do they talk a lot about Bill Gates and just other people that are that are running um, computer companies at this time. So there is a line about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates in the early '90s that I believe is still true today and accelerating. And I just think it's a um, a fascinating thing to remind ourselves. And it says their personal fortunes, meaning Jobs and Gates. Uh, their personal fortunes chart changes in the landscape of the American economy. And I would re- replace American economy with the global economy, the world economy. As money shifts from the solid, the bulky, the tangible, toward the trans- transitory and rapidly obsolescent, the miniature, the cerebral. So a lot of the people I've covered on, on this podcast made their money in atoms, physical infrastructure. I think Cornelius Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, uh, we just did uh, I, I, there's no we just me obviously I just did a three part series on Henry Frick and Andrew Carnegie these are they're, they're the world of atoms uh, Gates and, and Jobs are in large part especially Gates are making money in the world of bits and so I love how they talk about this and he's writing this in 93 you know so it says it's going away from the solid towards the transitory the rapidly obsolescent think about like uh, your iPhone if you had an iPhone that's like the, did you still use the iPhone 2 the iPhone 3 probably not uh, to the rapidly obsolete, to the miniature, and to the cerebral. It's really interesting. 
Um, and so now he's he's going to do a little like he talks a little bit about like the psychology of Steve Jobs, like why you know he's already been successful. If he would have just kept his, his Apple stock, he would have never had to work again in his life. Obviously, it's not what what motivates Steve Jobs. But um, let me just read this part, and then I'll tell you the note I left myself and what what I thought of when I came across this, this paragraph. It says, this, is, this suspicion troubles entrepreneurs of all ages, and many have embarked upon a succession of new ventures. These are, and this is interesting when he talks about this, the, 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 the desire to create new companies. Like, what is that? He says, these are self-imposed tests that could confirm that it was their own internal resources and not luck that accounted for their first success almost all fail in their quest to repeat earlier history. And so this is just a reminder that all good things come, uh, all good things in life come from compounding. That if you have a business that's working, it's best to stick with it. A lot of people, you know, they have this, uh, I always say like the holy grails, like your Von Chouinard of Patagonia. Not only do I think his, like, his philosophy and ethos on business is fascinating, but this, has, this guy is a 40-year-old private company uh, that's made him a billionaire that he still controls and and produces something that he loves, like that he's proud of the product that he makes, right? At, 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 compare and contrast that to a lot of like uh, literature on entrepreneurship, where it's like, okay, get an idea, scale a company and sell it, and then you're not going to be happy sitting in your ass. So this idea that like you just want to constantly be a serial entrepreneur, if that's what you are, you have to be who you are. I just think like what the author's saying is it's usually like your best idea like if you're not working on your best idea, you're doing it wrong. And then like usually when you have uh, you've built up a company that other people want to acquire, like it's kind of in some senses a validation of that idea. It's probably better to stick with it um, in more of the sense of like a uh, uh, like a Yvonne Chouinard. Um That's what I mean by all good things come uh, come uh, all good things in life come from compounding. Imagine Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger sold, sold Berkshire Hathaway 15 years ago. If you look at the net worth, the, the chart of Warren Buffett's net worth, it's skewed to the right. Like he would have given up 50%, 60% because all good things in life come from compounding of his net worth if he would have sold it. Um, so anyways, that, that made me think of this, this tweet I saw on Twitter a long time ago that just stuck with me. And I guess it was, uh, I forgot who, who wrote the, the, the tweet, but they were, I think their mentor, one of their mentors had like died recently or whatever the case is. And he talks about, some advice that he was given and he's like he told he told the younger person he's like stick with what works and he said rabbit eye kid rabbit eyed kid stop jumping focus and i think that's really good advice in general and it's interesting that out of all the advice that that person was given over the the the, the relationship he had with that person like that's the one thing that that really um like stuck out um this could be a one sentence summary of the book uh, for eight years, he pursued at Next a quixotic quest to conjure back the elusive magic that had borne Apple. About the same amount of time as Jobs was at Apple with nothing like the same result. So his first stint at Apple was about seven, eight years. Hugely successful. Apple II prints hundreds of millions of dollars constantly. Uh, and then yet, I, I just found it fascinating. Like, it's, time is clearly not the, um, like, it's not, it's not all things are like you're the way you spend your time and what you're working on. Of course, it's not just, Oh, I gave eight years. So I should expect the same results. Like, no, he had literally like the most successful product, one of the most successful products ever made in the Apple II, And one of the least successful pro products made in the next cube. Okay. So if that's a one sentence summary of the book, this is probably a one paragraph summary of the book. So it says the plot line is simple. 
Our central protagonist introduces a new product and carrying it proudly runs straight into the wall of customer indifference. He picks himself up and tries and tries again, each time with a new approach and a new set of supporting characters, and each staging is a bit different. An infamous temper, a mullish will, and a capacity when needed to apply a mesmerist charm gives job, numer Jobs numerous opportunities to dominate all scenes in which he makes an appearance. So here's actually, there, I guess there's two good ideas in, in the book. Um, Jobs did what you're doing this very second. Um, and that's, he studied the, from the entrepreneurs that came before him and he learned from them. Um, and then their ideas obviously influenced and, and enhanced his ideas. Um, now you could say that he should have studied like, he only studied like people like Henry Ford and, you know, because he wanted to be like, if there was a Mount, if there was such thing as like a Mount Rushmore of entrepreneurship, like he would definitely wanted to be on it. Um, so that was, you could study people like that and definitely learn from them, certainly, but you could also study from people, uh, like smaller successes, which he fails or smaller failures rather, uh, which he fails to do later on, which I'll tell you about in a little bit. So this is him, uh, well, just let me read it to you. He likened his own introduction of the easy-to-use Macintosh computers to what Alexander Graham Bell had done when he filed patents for the telephone in the 1870s. He was replacing existing technology with a new way of accomplishing the same task much more easily. That's actually a good way to build it. If you're able to find something that you can do that, that's a fantastic way to build a business. Without blushing, Jobs compared Bell's breakthrough, which was replacing the hard-to-learn code of the telegraph, with a telephone that anyone can use immediately without training to his own replacement of the hard to learn commands of the IBM personal computer with his Macintosh, which anyone could also use immediately. And just as the telephone permitted greater range of expression than dots and dashes of Morse code, even permitting one to sing, Jobs' Macintosh permitted greater expressiveness too. The historical comparisons that filled Jobs' mind are all of grand scale. Another recurring favorite, favorite is to compare his work with computers to that of Henry Ford when the uh, automobile industry was in its infancy. In 1986, after he'd left Apple and started Next, Jobs looked back to Ford and said, it must have been the most incredible feeling to know this was going to change America. The thing is, I'm not sure they knew that at the time. I'm pretty sure they didn't know it at the time. Referring to Next, he said, if we can create the kind of company, and I only base that off like the, the few books I've read on, on Henry Ford, I, I would say he didn't know like the impact he was going to have. I mean, he had the idea of making it so cheap that anybody could afford it. And maybe says, Hey, if everybody could afford it, they're going to buy this, this card, but there's no way he could have predicted. Like, think about if you live in America, think about the, the invention of the automobiles. I don't know if there's another single, um, product that has ever shaped like the, the geography of the, the country. It's, it's, mind-blowing um okay so it says referring to next he said if we can create the kind of company i think we can it will give me an extreme amount of pleasure this is what makes jobs unusual among the business gentry the naked chasing chasing of not money but a place in history and you have to ask like why did he believe that one single person could have such a, a huge impact and so this is Steve Jobs on the leverage technology provides a single individual jobs is correct the computer industry is still at a young formative stage and if its future development is imagined as a long arc, this is actually an interesting idea too. So maybe there's a couple good things that he says in here. <laughs> maybe it's not just one or two. Um, so it says the computer industry is still at a young formative stage and its future development is, is imagined as a long arc. Then a single individual like himself can exert significant lasting influence by nudging the industry's path at an early point. And so the metaphor he uses here is a really good illustration of his point. 
Jobs put it into the vocabulary of space shots. You have to move the vector a little bit in its first inch, and the swing will be enormous by the time it gets to be three miles long. Um, okay, so now this is a lesson that Steve Jobs ignored. So now we're moving, oh, um, well, let me just read this to you then. Uh, what saved Apple from financial catastrophe at the time was the primitive little Apple II. Though it belonged to the Pleistocene era of personal computers, Apple continued to sell hundreds of millions of dollars with a machine every quarter, long after demand had been expected to drop. So that's what I mean why I recommend reading, listening to the podcast I did last week and then reading the book, Return to the Little Kingdom, because it's describing like what, like with a with a real in-depth, like inside look at what a, what happens to a company when they, when they create a product that's an unexpected massive success. It's really, I don't know if I've come across another book that's only kind of constrained itself to, to that period um, in a company's life. Uh, so it says, how ironic that the Apple II with a microprocessor, uh, it's only eight bits, skip, 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 uh, proved that, uh, proved stalwart, meaning lasting, when the Lisa, based on a more advanced 32-bit microprocessor, faltered and collapsed. So the point they're making here is like, yeah, Lisa might have been technolog technologically more superior than Apple II, but your customers might not care about that. Um, the lesson that one could draw from the Lisa debacle included these. Keep in touch with the intended customers and avoid the pitfalls of isolation. Do not assume that customers will pay any price to secure the latest computer technology. Ease the way for customers to adopt a new computer standard by providing software and hardware bridges that help connect older machines to new ones. Rely less... Uh, reply, rely upon less expensive products that have fewer features or less advanced technology to pay the bills while the top-of-the-line flagship computer establishes a secure place in the market. These are hardly profound, yet Steve Jobs would ignore every one of these when he launched next. And that's what's so, like, <clears throat> th this book, uh, <laughs> I I was thinking to myself, like, how would you even describe it? And it's just like, what the, the, the I think when I was reading the book, there's so many times where I'd pause and look up and I'd be like, what the hell? What the hell did I just read? What the hell just happened? Like, what the author's describing there is, is ostensibly like firsthand lessons that Steve Jobs learned through previous experience. And yet, for whatever reason, he ignored them all. It's not like, it may be even like, shouldn't it be hard? Shouldn't it be easier to learn from firsthand experience than it is from like secondhand experience? That's what, at least that's what most people say. But that's not at all uh, like, certain either uh it's it's this is such a like we're gonna get into these decisions and you're just like what the hell is going on here okay so um he's he founds next and he says hey uh we're not going to build a cheap personal computer like apple we're not going to build these huge mainframes like ibm <clears throat> but sorry guys i'm getting over another little cold i don't know what the heck's going on um but we're going to build something like in between. And he calls it like a way. So the, the, there, there was a category at the time called workstation. Eventually jobs even narrows that down and he uses the term like personal workstation. But he's like, we're not going to go after business. <laughs> like we're not going to go after Fortune 500. We're not going to go after individuals. We're not going to go after small businesses. We're going to go after universities. But selling universities is really, really complicated. And again, this is another bad strategic move by Steve Jobs. He says... Jobs did not have a clear understand, a clear idea of what universities needed, nor did he understand the collective nature of university decision-making. His own inclination was to go to lunch with the president of Stanford, lift a sheet, this is talking about um, 
comparing how they sold to universities at Apple compared to why he thinks this would work at next, right? He's just going to copy this. Lift the sheet off the Macintosh and say, how would you like to buy a thousand of these for a million dollars? But such a decision was not primarily the prerogative of a single person. Rather, it was a collective decision that involved varying combinations of computer center directors, deans and associate deans, academic vice presidents, university council, and faculty committees. Jobs did not have the skill or the patience for persuading the lower levels of the academic power structure, which is really weird why he would choose that strategy moving forward. Um, so it says Steve Jobs had many reasons. Then the I left myself is like, it's understandable why he would target the educational model, but he was just wrong. Um, so it says Steve Jobs had many reasons to be grateful for higher education's early embrace of the Macintosh. And the reason I say it's understandable, it's understandable only in the sense that Apple, early Apple was very successful with like a guerrilla sales tactic to selling to universities, which I think like at the time, it was something like four or five salespeople that were all spread out throughout the United States, like doing uh, selling on campus. And they were doing like something like, I forgot the exact number, but let's say it was like four or five million people and they were doing like 50 million in sales or 100 million in sales. It's something like disproportionate to the size of the team, right? But that's also misunderstanding that at first, it's way less expensive, you know, talking about 2000 or sub $2,000 at the time compared to when Next finally unveils its um, its cube. It's, you know, $7,000 for a really stripped down model. Really, it's like ten to $12,000. Um, so he, I guess what I'm saying here is like he fundamentally misunderstood why that strategy was successful. And when he tried to duplicate it with Next, it didn't work. Um, and we'll get into more. I'll get into more detail about that. So it says it was universities that provided early purchase commitments even before the machine was introduced to the public. Uh, it was universities that were willing to support an improved computer standard, defying the overweening muscle of the standard bearer, IBM. It was universities that had voted to support the Macintosh. So again, these are all lessons that he kind of ignored or maybe misinterpreted is a better word of why it would work at Next, even though he's selling a fundamentally different product. Even though it would be years before a wide variety of software could be available for it, university was flexible, appreciative of new technology, and not incidentally constituted a renewable market. The one millionth Macintosh was sold in early 1987, a mere, a mere three years after the machine's introduction. And the author has a side note here, and he says, keep this in mind when we look at uh, look at Next's subsequent history. He's going to compare and contrast that. I think in the entire history of Next, they sold like 50,000 computers over like eight years. So vastly different than uh, the Macintosh. Uh, Jobs, oh, so I guess I tripped over my own point, or I guess the author's point here. He says, Jobs drew one lesson above all others from this experience. If universities back superior computer technology once, they could do it again for Next. So again, I, I, that's what I mean where I say it's understandable why he would target the educational model. It was just, he was just wrong because he was selling a fundamentally different product. Um, okay, so last week I talked about he, Jobs had this idea when they're they're creating the Macintosh. He took a small team and basically with uh, with what at the time his employees called his reality distortion field. He gave them the impression that it wasn't a huge, successful billion-dollar company already, but there's a small group, and they're like scrappy and struggling, and they're working in a garage, not an office. That was obviously not true, but that's the kind of um, environment that he cultivated. Now, the, the weird thing is that was hugely successful, just like it was hugely successful when they made the Apple One, right? He didn't do that at all at Next. He abandoned the frugal beginning 
you know, the the mythical like entrepreneur in the garage kind of uh, ethos. And the problem is like this er- the early forced resourcefulness of a company is partially responsible for its initial success because if it was just a matter of resources. Big companies would obviously dominate forever. But but he started another company and just skipped over that part. But you can't. That's like one of the fundamental like foundations that you're building your company on, right? So he says, he was not about to return to the frugal circumstances of the beginning of his business career. He had started Apple in his family's garage and had evoked the image of the metaphorical garage when he later took control of the Macintosh group. Um, but this time and next, he would start off not in a garage, but in a mansion, his home in Woodside, which he'd purchased from the Gianni family, who are the founders of Bank of America, interesting enough. This served as the company's temporary office for four months until they could move into formal offices. The advance of age and personal fortune promoted his intolerance of anything but the absolute best. Instead of choosing the least expensive office space available in the area, like a, your parents' garage, for example, he chose some of the most expensive. But even if you don't want to work in a garage, like you don't have to go crazy like he does. And what do I mean by that? Think about how ridiculous this is. You don't. What I'm about to, the sentence I'm about to read to you. Keep in mind, they don't have a product. They're like three years from having a product they can sell. And the only funding they have is $7 million that Jobs gave him himself, right? This is the next decision, just like, what the hell are you doing? He hired a full-time interior designer as one of the first 10 employees at Next. Long before a computer would be ready for unveiling, Jobs talked with architects. Now, think about this. Long before a computer would be ready for unveiling. Other, another way to put that is, I have not built a product yet. I, there is no product. It doesn't exist. But this is what I'm doing with my time. Jobs talk with architects about designing next sales offices in major cities around the country. What? Jobs pursued his own set of priorities and the look of the next offices took precedence over most everything else. Steve Jobs is not a stupid person. He's not a stupid person. But this was a really stupid decision. Um, And then again, you have to be who you are. This is another weird thing I read. So he decides, hey, um, we're going to have complete transparency. Complete complete transparency of like all the metrics and everything in a company. So wait a minute though. Like I've read a bunch of books on Steve Jobs at this point. He's famous for being super secretive. So I read this point, I read this part and I left a note to myself. It's like, wait, complete transparency, transparency from a super secretive founder. Like how long is this possible? This, this will last. So I'm going to describe what he, he sets out at the beginning. And of course it doesn't last long. So he says, Jobs had adopted the policy of making all information internally available as a deliberate departure from standard operating procedure in business. He reasoned that next individual's employees were like human cells. Each was specialized, but each one possessed a genetic code for the whole body. This organic model underlay his management philosophy. Now this is a direct quote from Jobs. We think Next will be the best possible company if every single person working here understands the whole basic master plan and can use that as a yardstick to make decisions. That makes sense if that's who you are, but you have to be who you are, and he's, that's not who he is. The internal openness was virtually forced by the small size of Next. Starting with a handful of employees in an industry dominated by giants, Next could not begin to match the resources deployed by its much longer competition. Much, much larger competition. By necessity, the company could only grow by what Jobs called outthinking the others. Um, so you might ask yourself, like, how, why was Steve Jobs able to win over so many recruits against other companies like Apple, Microsoft, and IBM, all three of which were vastly more successful at this time than, than Next was? Um, he says, but here's the reason why. How many rainmakers had track records like his? An unemotional review of Jobs' past success led to the conclusion that remarkable success had been fallen in many people 
in his immediate vicinity in the past. And it was a simple step to assume that the odds favored the similar success would continue uh, would continue to come to those who stood by him in the future. So saying, hey, my success is is ensured just by proximity to this guy who has a great track record. That's not really um, something that this is not, if you've listened to every single episode I've done, this isn't something new. If you remember um, Paul English, he was one of the founders of Kayak and a bunch of other um, companies. So, uh, Tracy Kidder wrote this great book on him called Truck Full of Money. And the interesting part in the book, it's revealed like, why did you call this book, this book truck full of money is because Paul had already sold like a couple companies before he found a kayak. And you know, kind of like, they, they describe him like falling ass backwards into success. Um, and he, he's trying to recruit a programmer who has his own company. And that programmer decides to leave his, the company he founded to join Paul. And he's telling his co-founder why he's like, listen, he goes, one day in the future, that dude's going to get hit by a truck full of money, and I'm going to be standing next to him when it, when it happens. <laughs> so I thought that, that that's a story that stuck out, uh, stuck with me. You know, for, It's been a long time since I read that book, and I think a lot of the people that joined Next at, um, at the, in its early days assumed the same about Steve Jobs. And this is a funny story, the fine line between charisma and lunacy, because there's, you know, the, the book talks about Steve Jobs did have a superpower. There is like this abstract um, trait that a human can have that's extremely effective with other humans and it's charisma, but there's a fine line between charisma and lunacy. And we're going to hear this great story about how you determine if you're, if you just have a, if you're following a charismatic leader, if you're following a lunatic. So charisma, when used today to refer to a business leader, usually refers to some form of uh, magnetism. The charisma that Jobs had, however, was more than this. It was the power that a leader religious or not, possesses that derives from a perceived connection to the overarching questions of human existence. Jo- this is, and this is his, how he frames his mission. It's not I'm just starting a company. He's like, I'm on a mission. Jobs was not engaged in the business of selling breakfast cereal or bathroom faucets. He was not even focused on pursuit of profits. Others could pursue the mundane. He was after the much larger quarry of changing the world, rescuing computer users from the existing prison of mediocrity, making a dent in the universe, carrying out revolution, claiming an enduring place in history. It was the extraordinary scope of his ambition that was the ultimate source of his appeal. Charismatic power cannot exist in isolation, however, without followers. So says this guy, Bryant Wilson, a student of charisma, put the matter colorfully. If a man runs naked down the street proclaiming that he alone can save others from impending doom, and if he immediately wins a following, then he is a charismatic leader. A social relationship has come into being. If he does not win a following, he is simply a lunatic. I was listening, I was taking notes on um, this talk. Uh, I think it was a podcast actually that um, Elon Musk was on. And he made the point. It's interesting because now, you know, you hear this ad nauseum. Every single person starts a company. He's like, I'm making a dent in the universe. I'm changing the world. And Elon was kind of like, poking fun at this he's like it's extremely hard and extremely rare for people single companies to literally make it like to change the world yet you hear everybody that has like a dog walking app that says i'm changing the world so he i just thought it was funny that elon pointed that out he's just like this is ridiculous and a lot a lot of this comes you know a lot of people rightfully so try to um to like replicate replicates the word that's coming to mind but it's not the right meaning like replicate certain traits of jobs um, or they're maybe they're inspired by him, but again, like we could just say, Hey, I have a, I have a, I started a company. It solves a problem. It, it's valuable because it saves you time or money 
or it's useful to you in some way. Like, there's nothing wrong with just saying that. You don't have to say that, you know, this guy's saying, like, rescuing computer users from the existing prison of mediocrity. Like, it's just funny. I find it hilarious. And the idea of, you know, that if you don't find any, like, it is, there is an element of truth in the sense that, like, the size of the, the, the fact that you ha can you know, convince other people to follow you does lend credence to your charisma, but that same charisma, when rejected by society, makes you crazy. Um, I don't know. I guess that's why I said it's a fine line. Um, okay, so here, here's the problem. Uh, one of the problems. I shouldn't say the problem. There's a multitude of problems here. Next begins with too much money and no sense of urgency. So it says, Next began its life with a major, if unrecognized, problem. It had too much money, courtesy of a single person, Steve Jobs, whose plan for the company were unformed and innocent of financial analysis. It says, Others may have envied Next and the $7 million that Jobs bestowed upon it. Again, this is, I would say it's maybe counterintuitive to a lot of people. I think if you listen to this podcast, you know it's now, you should know it's not counterintuitive that starting a company with no sense of urgency and a lot of money is usually not how any of these companies uh in the biographies that we've covered start but it says uh so they may have envied this but the fact uh but in fact time would show that relying upon a founder benefactor like jobs for its financing ultimately hurt next because it meant that the company did not have to face the discipline of assembling financial numbers that made sense looking hard at itself as a business proposition and defining milestones milestones by which it could measure uh whether it was on track or not again like it's Somebody gave you that. The same thing with anybody raising money as opposed to getting money from customers. Like somebody gave you that $7 million. Now you may be able to turn that $7 million into a product and and and, um, and get a return for your investors and make the company profitable. But you can't confuse $7 million from an investor or your own personal bank account as $7 million given to you by customers you want what you're selling. Those are two fundamentally different things. Um, so not only do they have too much money, no sense of urgency because all this money, which is bizarre, but they're also like, they have too much, he recruited a bunch of people that were previously successful with him at Apple, but they had too much belief in their own infallibility. Now there's, a, again, another fine line just between charisma and lunacy, but it's also a fine line between confidence and reality distortion. And this is not the only time I'm going to share a quote with you like this. But it says, the founders preceded by seat of the pants instincts because of the underlying feeling of invincibility that their earlier success at Apple had instilled in them. At Apple and later at Next, they might have liked to talk about serving ordinary people, but they themselves were not mortals. They were God. They were the gods who had created a personal computer universe out of nothingness. Jobs, for example, displayed little modesty in Next press releases, describing himself as a person who had overseen the growth of Apple into a $2 billion company. Now, here's the problem. It was something we've talked about a lot. We're like, there's a lot of people, a lot of smart people out there that believe the most the most important cause of a company's success is actually the market you're in, and that even if you're um, uh, just an okay company, if your if your if your timing is right and the market wants what you're like, the market will pull a product out of a company, right? That's a that's actually a good description of what happened with Apple too. Like internal company forecasts were way lower than actual sales. Next is the reverse internal company forecasts are way higher than actual sales. So the market you're in is the most important cause of success is something that other people believe. This is an example of that and why I included it right after telling you that the founders that came, the other co-founders with Steve Jobs for Next that came out of Apple, you know, like, oh, we did that. We were the cause of Apple's success. You played a role undoubtedly, but 
maybe you didn't even understand what the success was caused by, right? So it says next was born at what now, and this is the point. The, 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 the creation of the Apple II happened a very different time period in history than the creation of the next cube. It says next was born at a time at what we now see was the twilight of the early era of the personal computer. Apple II was the beginning. This is the end, right? The Apple exiles and Next were pumped with adrenaline and self-confidence and unaware of how the incredible growth that the industry had experienced obscured misjudgments, which would have been fatal in any other setting. Otherwise, the demand was so high that you could that you could fuck up and it the, the demand is going to paper over some of these mistakes, right? The market in its early 1980s had been forgiving because personal computers were in such demands. That's why the the, the, the this act of building especially it's hard enough to build one successful company but doing it over and over and over again it's very hard these are complex systems it's very hard to tell when you have a complex system it's very hard to determine cause uh first correlation like or causation excuse me first correlation um and you we see some of these mistakes being made by you know even people that were widely revered to be you know quote unquote the best in their field or best at what they do um another huge flaw in their plan i don't understand this at all <laughs> Um, no, I'll just read my note first. So, well, let me read it after. Okay. The next employees in the fall of 1985 were clear eyed about the problems that they faced. Okay. So now the company's up and running. They know what they want to build. They know the target market. They just don't know if they're going to be able to do it in time. They knew that in order to break the allegiance of university customers to establish com computer lines, the next computer would have to be more than just marginally better. It would have to be an order of magnitude better. They knew that time was working against them. They had to deliver the computers to the market by the spring of 1985 in order to be considered for fall 1987 purchases. So again, goes back to that strategic mistake that you, uh, you're targeting universities, yet they only make purchases in one time a year. So if you miss that date, you're pushed back another year, which means you have to float the company. Universities usually make large purchase decisions only once a year. If, oh, I guess I just ran over this thing I was going to read. If next was late, it would not it would not have another chance until the following academic year's purchase cycle again. Okay, so that's a huge flaw in their plan, right? We have to make something. We have to create something that's an order of magnitude better than what already exists from other companies that have way more resources than us, and we have to do it in eighteen months. What? But give, this is a note of myself. Given this, why would the founder focus on interior design of office space and a hundred thousand dollar logo? Which is, again, this is the objective of the company. But where is the founder's focus on stuff that does not matter? The, the interior design of your of your um, office space is a mute a moot moot point if you're if you don't have a product that's successful you're confusing the order of operations here you need the, the product a successful product gets you office space jobs reversed it it's i have the best office space in the world and no product well what did you think the outcome was going to be like this is kind of i mean again i say it's predictable because it, to us it's predictable because we know how it already already occurred it's not at all clear i mean in, i guess it is kind of clear in the sense like his confidence was like yeah okay Oh, I'm a freaking product genius. I need to make the, the, the product an order of magnitude better than anybody else in 18 months with no resources. I could do that easily. Now, that's proved to not be true. Um, and I guess the cautionary tale for you is like you may be really smart and really successful what you do. Then just stick with what you're doing. <laughs> Don't get kicked out of your company. Don't try to do it again. Um, and again, why bet the company? There's another note of myself. Why bet the company on one thing? That seems hugely like irresponsible. Um, he said he returned to the idea of the opportunity of the present moment to deliver a machine that others could not. Next had an open window that provided the perfect entree 
to the university market. And this quote from him, we have been given it, and thank God we've been given it. Nobody else has done it. It's a wonderful window. We have 18 months. I guess that's one way to look at it. Uh, If they failed to deliver the machine on time, he said the company would fail. So why are you doing that? Why are you betting your entire company on that? Um, And now, so now I'm going to skip forward uh, almost a year. And um, now you have jobs bemoaning the idea that like we stopped acting like we needed to be resourceful. Never stop acting like you need to be resourceful. Like, isn't that like a fundamental like, premise of of running a company like why when you get fat we know what happens when companies get fat and happy inevitable decline and it's weird it's coming from jobs because he's the one making a lot of these decisions so it says if delivering a finished machine in the spring of uh by the spring of 1987 it seemed difficult to achieve in the fall of 1985 remember the beginning of their 18 month window it seemed even more unlikely by the time the company held its second retreat in 1986 so he, he titles this retreat the honeymoon is over uh, no longer would they be able to rest on past laurels, a lot has changed in a year apparently, or to seek the solace of feeling victimized by the lawsuit and lost time. Uh, lawsuits, Apple suing them. Uh, bottom line is the world doesn't really care, he said. Next was jet now just another startup and would be judged henceforth by what his product was, by what his product was, which doesn't exist by the way at this time, and in how timely a fashion it would be delivered to market, which is several years from now. Not only was time slipping by too quickly, but so too was money. This like, this is, should have been obvious from the beginning. This is why I don't understand. It's so bizarre. Jobs complain aloud that we're not scrounging. Yeah, you hired an interior designer as your first 10 hire. Like, come on. The company had just bought new Macintoshes instead of finding friends at Apple to buy them for next at a deep employee discounts. He complained. We stopped nickel and diming for all that stuff and it adds up. So that's, you never started. Now, what he's confusing is, and something that's, that was unknown to me until I read Michael uh, Moritz's book last week was Steve Jobs was like, a penny pincher like no other. He would negotiate on end with every single vendor and supplier. And like, he was just relentless about that at the beginning of Apple. Those are probably good traits to have at the beginning of a company. And next he didn't ever do that. Um, and now he's complaining that we stopped, we stopped nickel and diamond. You never did. You're like, you did at Apple, but you didn't do it next. And the author picks up on this. He says, it is certainly strange, however, that the man whom Inc. Magazine would later name as entrepreneur of the decade conserved his $7 million at Next no better than a child deposited deposited at a candy store with a bulging piggy bank. Born too rich for its own good, Next was a startup that was privileged and crippled with fiscal complacency. By the time Jobs and other senior managers awakened to the limits of the founding capital and tried to practice economies uh, try to low, basically lower expenses. It was f- too little, too late. The money was gone. And this is something I also didn't know. When Next had been founded, Jobs intended that the company would remain solely in the hands of himself and his employees. This was part of the pitch to the early recruits that Next would always be employee-owned. Well, when you run out of money, you can't. So now he goes around trying to get investment from venture capitalists. He wants like a $30 million valuation or something like that. Everybody says no. So he's uh, he's actually really screwed at this point. He's running out of money. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And there's this TV show that came and profiled him and a bunch of other entrepreneurs. It's called The Un- the Entrepreneurs. And just how it happened, Ross Perot, the billionaire, uh, the uh, Texas billionaire that winds up trying to run for president of the United States as an independent, like 92, sees the film and he didn't care. He's like, I want in. And so he calls up, just as Jobs doesn't know what to do, he's getting declined for a $30 million valuation by everybody. Um, no one wants to invest. Ross Pro's like, hey, I'll give you $100 million. <laughs> and this is what he said. Uh, this is Ross Pro's quote about investing in Next. 
Uh, and this all came from a TV show. Like, the world we live in is so strange, man. He had made up his mind to invest on whatever terms were proposed. He did not care about the numbers. He would let the next people worry about such things. He told them, I pick the jockeys, and the jockeys pick the horses and ride them. You guys are the ones I'm betting on, so you figure it out. Um, so he winds up getting $126 million valuation. Uh, Steve Jobs parlays Ross Perot's investment. He throws in a little bit more money and then convinces uh, uh, some colleges, Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, to join and invest. Um, but that's not the weird. I mean, that is kind of bizarre. But the weird part was this is like he's going to brag about something that I'm just not sure is something you should be proud of. It says Jobs bragged that the $126 million valuation was the highest for any company in Silicon Valley history without a product. Jobs' pitch was simple and impatient. We have built successful products in the past, and you can roll the dice on us if you want, but this remains our show and we won't stand for extended investigation. What's surprising to me is a lot of people, Ross Perot's not an idiot. He agreed to this. Ostensibly, the people running Stanford and Carnegie Mellon are an idiot. They also agreed to this. Um, he did no better with universities than with venture capitalists, even a cursory grant, so that the valuation measured by any conventional ruler was far too high. However, Perot's blessing convinced two universities, Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, to join in and invest too. Um, and then this is how Steve, how Ross Perot saw Steve Jobs. To me, it's just a reminder that there's many different interpretations of the same thing, and that a lot of, of it seems to be like a a tenet of human nature is that we tend to see what we want to see. It's kind of dangerous when you're trying to build a company, right? I'm going to close with a brief story, and this is Ross Perot speaking. I'm going to close with a brief story about one interesting experience I've had. A young man, so it's describing jobs, so bright that they let him sit in the engineering classes at Stanford in high school. So poor that he couldn't afford to go to college. Working in his garage at night, playing with computer chips, which was his hobby, his dad came in one day. Um, and said, Steve, either make something you could sell or go get a job. 60 days later, in a wooden box that his dad made for, for him, the first Apple computer was created. And this high school graduate literally changed the world. Well, that's not really what happened, though. And so the author says, what are we, able, what are we to make of Pro's description of the impression that Jobs had made upon him? Smart, modest, and not of any kind of an ego trip? Steve Jobs, modest, able to contain his ego? Not even his closest friends would make such claims on his behalf. Or what about Perot's summary of Jobs vanquishing the evil giant? This young man went up, uh, up against IBM in a capital-intensive business and ate him alive. That was a quote from Ross, from Ross Perot. <clears throat> but was that true? What happened to the instant success of the IBM personal computer when introduced in 1981 and the blow at Delta Apple? Who ate whom alive? Or how could we join Perot in paying uh, obscience to Jobs' business sagacity uh, the equivalent of what Perot called 50 years of business experience. When we can now look back and see that Jobs had committed the most dunderheaded, I've never even heard that word before, blunder in modern finance. He sold off most of his Apple stock in 1985 at its absolute nadir instead of holding on for two more years in which time its value had increased eightfold. And so he talks about, he's like, listen, that what he's, this is an interesting part. So, uh, so that gave him $700 million in paper losses that could be attributed to the timing of the sale. And so he actually makes an interesting point there. He says, next would have to be very, very successful if Jobs were sim to simply recruit what he might, one, what one might say he lost by liquidating his Apple holdings as an opportune time. So he could have made $700 million just by sitting on his butt and holding onto his stock instead of starting a company. But again, I don't think he was, a, I mean, that's an interesting point by the, the author's making, but I don't, it doesn't appear that uh, Steve Jobs ever optimized just for, like he wanted to be rich, but once you're, you know, 
couple hundred million dollars rich. I don't think he was optimizing for the highest number from there. But it, it was an interesting like parallel reality for Steve Jobs if that would have happened. Um, now here's more unclear thinking, which is weird because I always talk about like Steve Jobs, especially if you read like uh, the book Creative Selection, which if you're designing products, I think you definitely should. Um, it's about like a, a Apple programmer that um, created it was in, worked on creating the Safari browser and then uh, like the keyboard for the iPhone. But reading these books, you're like, wow, like I've never come across such clear thinking from a person. That's later Steve Jobs. This Steve Jobs is full of unclear thinking, which is really interesting. I, I mean, that's also inspiring in the sense that we can. This is a skill we can learn to improve, and I think it's like a meta skill. If you can, if you can clarify your thinking, like that affects all other parts of your life. You can apply it to other domains. Uh, so it says Jobs and Esslinger, somebody worked at Next, were oblivious to the possibility that Next prospective customers would be more interested in what the computer could do than how its sleek shape gave its claim to a place in the Smithsonian, meaning they're optimizing for making the most beautiful computer on the outside. But because they spent so much time and energy on this, they wound up releasing something that was slower, it was black and white, it was, it, it, from a technical perspective, uh, you're charging two or five, two to three times as much for something that's half as good. Most important of all, the cube needed to be offered at a competitive price, yet the very details that comprise its perfect appearance were chosen without heed to cost. So again, uh, he, he meets with uh, his prospective customers, which is the university, saying, listen, we're going to be paying for this thing. It can't be more than $3,000. Cannot be. Uh, Steve Jobs tries to sell him a computer that's ten dollars or $12,000, and they don't buy it because they told you it needed to be 3000 but he spent a lot of money uh, frivolously and that caused the price to go up when all they wanted, they really wanted like a, more, a little bit more powerful Macintosh. You could have just built that, but he wasn't interested in that. He wanted, again, make something a magnitude better, which again, it really wasn't better though. Um, and I think if, if, if anything has been apparent by the, the, the biographies and the podcasts so far, um, yeah, if there was any fundamental laws of company building, I think one of them laws would have to be watch your costs, which Steve violates repeatedly in building next. And here's a paragraph description of this. Costs were not of primary concern. That that one sentence on its own is ridiculous. And so the cost of manufacturing and finishing a single cube case turned out to be higher than next original estimates by a factor of 10. Costs escalated well beyond initial projections on all other fronts too, yet Jobs could not be swayed from adjusting his course in the slightest. So again, these are self-inflicted wounds. They told you. They're good. So here's the interesting part. <clears throat> 85, in 1985, they say, hey, it needs to be $3,000, right? 18 months later, when they find out Next still doesn't have a computer, they're like, okay, that's okay. It'd be better if it was closer to $1,000. So he knew that. He was told both of those things. 3,000, then, you know what, if you can make it close to 1,000, that's even better. And his <laughs> estimates are off by a factor of 10 in the opposite direction. Uh, so the author makes the case. So one thing that Steve wanted to do, he's like, he, did, he was uh, dismayed that all of uh, like electronic manufacturing was being moved from America to J J Japan at the time. And he's saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, uh, he wanted like complete vertical integration. So he wanted to ha build a completely, completely automated factory in the next headquarters and he invested heavily in this and this this is going to tell you why that's probably a bad idea especially when you don't have a like you, you want to manufacture your own product you don't even know if that product's successful right like why don't you 
get to this later on in life. That may make sense, right? Not at the beginning. So the author says this, the single, the, the, he calls this the single most expensive and unwise commitment that Steve made. Uh, the fact that like insisting on manufacturing computers inside next. Um, and, but this is how Steve Jobs goes around describing why he's doing this. And this is another what the hell moment. So he said he compared the appeal of the next computer to the appeal of purchasing a BMW. He explained to employees, if you're going to buy a great sports car, what's the best way to do it? You fly to Europe, go to the factory, and buy it there. So let me pause before I go any further. How many people on the planet are able to do this? Like, and your, your target market is um, college students. What? So you'll understand what I mean when I continue. Jobs imagined that future customers, reading college students, would do the same and fly to California so that they could watch the particular computer that they had ordered go through the assembly line. The decision to build an automated manufacturing plant in addition to simultaneously designing new hardware and new software led to an enormous drain of attention and money. So those three things by themselves are next to impossible. He's doing them all at the same time. Uh, the investment in its own factory would also prove costly over the long term in another sense. And this is a hugely important point that the author's making. Uh, by creating a vested interest in computer hardware that would make, uh, so you, you invest all, you have all these sunk costs, right? And we know from human psychology that it's really hard to overcome this and make a, a good decision. So it says, by creating a vested interest in computer hardware that would make, uh, make it much more difficult for Next to evaluate objectively the wisdom of continuing to market its own hardware instead of focusing on what would become its real strength, which is what's its software. It's weird. Who, could you imagine, like how many people would want to be like, oh, I'm going to order a computer. Okay, now I'm going to fly across the country and go watch it be assembled? What? Um, so this is interesting. Uh, also, like, he was bad managing at this point um, because he wouldn't accept bad news. So what happens when you, when people give you bad news, but true, it's true. So the news is true, but bad, right? And you, and you penalize them for giving you true, but bad news. What are they going to do? They're going to give you false Good news are false like time frames in this case. So it says um, the, the, they kept like they're, they're trying to do their chip design and they need the, the work would take at least another year. But be, they had to, but because of examples I'm about to explain to you, like they would tell jobs, oh, just one more month over and over again. One more month, one more month, because Steve refused to accept bad news. And why did they have to lie to him? Because he'd do stuff like this. Screaming at the head of the chip design team, do you realize you're killing our company? Jobs transferred responsibility for delays to his underlings and then smeared them with his contempt. Not much thanks for working 18-hour days for the previous year. The other next employees witnessed this bloody spectacle and drew the appropriate conclusions. From then on, no one dared to be the one who would deliver the bad news. That's the exact opposite conclusion that you would want, right? If you're running the company, put yourself in his shoes. Don't you want to know realistically how long it's going to take? Um, more unclear, weird strategic decision-making. Um, they, they go to these like educational conferences. This is 1987. <laughs> we still don't have a prototype to show you. The finished product won't come anywhere close to the price you have stated you're willing to pay, but Hey, here's 18 pages on how our logo was designed. What? Question mark. That's the note I left myself at the 1987 meeting of Educom. Uh, next kept details of the cube hidden and instead distributed a beautifully printed 18 page brochure about the next logo. Academics accustomed to the mean penny pitching of nonprofit organizations, economizing that jobs no longer could even imagine, were not a good choice of an audience for telling them in such length in such lengthy form the tale 
of the $100,000 logo. Why would you do that, right? Isn't it bizarre? We're in, this is like bizarro Steve Jobs. Um, okay, so when Next was finally ready to sell computers, the price was $7,000. The response, and that's like a dumbed down, like the basic, it was really not $7,000. Um, and then the, the, the response uh, from the universities was, this is not the computer you promised us. This is not the computer we wanted. Um, and so they're going on trying to solicit pre-orders. It says, next was open to whatever number schools were willing to pledge. But even under pressure, the advisory board could not muster orders from more than a handful of machines total. Jobs was stunned. His best customer prospects were unwilling to commit. This is what happens when you're, there's no urgency and you, you've um, isolated yourself from like the, the real world constraints of making a profit because you've raised so much money from Steve Jobs and Ross Perot, eventually Canon, the, the, the Japanese company, throws up a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, I think maybe like 150 million in total. And because you, you're, then you're like, what do you mean? We're like, we have beautiful offices. We have this great machine. No one wants to buy it. I'm stunned. Um, and you you realize that like maybe he would have picked up on this earlier because Steve himself was even having trouble positioning the machine he was building. He wasn't really sure what it was. It says Jobs decided to try to finesse this by thinking of his machine as a never seen before hybrid, what he called a personal workstation providing the ease of use of a personal computer and the power of a workstation, except it didn't have that. It was a beguiling idea that neatly ignored the reality that it would be too expensive to be a standalone personal computer and too technically deficient to be an attractive workstation, right? He's in the messy middle. By positioning his machine as a personal workstation, Jobs would in effect double his competition. He's not only would be, he not only would be taking on all the personal computer world, like the Apples, the IBMs, and all the rest, but also the workstation world too. It was like purposely whacking two hornet's nests instead of one. Um, so this next part talks about like the idea of computer companies targeting the education market was not anything um, was not anything new. I was taking notes. If you haven't got on my personal email list, um, I'll leave a link in the in the show notes. But I was taking uh, basically I take note anytime. Obviously, there's like podcasts on entrepreneurship, or I've been getting going through a lot of talks on YouTube. Like I found. Um, one of Charlie Munger's commencement addresses like from like 13 years ago or 15 years ago, something like that. And I just sent it to my email list this week. And, you know, Charlie Munger is one of the, the most interesting thinkers I've ever come across. And he, he quotes Cicero in this um, in this commencement address that he's giving uh, before a bunch of, I think, graduating law students at USC. And he says one of his serious quotes is uh, from Cicero. says, a man who doesn't know what happened before he was born goes through life like a child. So it's Charlie saying like the benefits of studying history. Um, Steve Jobs studied history in the sense of like Thomas Edison, Edwin Land, uh, Henry Ford, but he should have also looked to see if anybody done tried what he's exactly doing because he would have found this story right here. He says the pattern continued when computers and education were matched in the 1960s, with universities and colleges such as MIT, University of Michigan, and Dartmouth leading the way. American higher education was, for a brief historical moment, caught up in a blinding vision of computer-based revolution. Um, so it talks about they had they wanted to develop all they had hundreds of courses uh, that would be put on the computer you know very similar to what people talk about doing now um, and at the time and you see how extreme this got up that this was taking place like the the um, the optimism at the time uh, this is in the 1960s at about the same time a new college in Michigan purposely built its library in such a way to accommodate only a few thousand books leaving room for the new media of the audiovisual and computer age. 
It's not that we don't like books, said the architect. It's just that they aren't the best way to transmit information anymore. Jobs was too young. That's obvious. I mean, I would take the other side of the argument easily. Jobs was too young to have any personal memories of this earlier period. This was unfortunate because he might have done things at Next a bit different if he had paid attention to the history of computers and revolutionary delusions found on campuses 25 years earlier. Um, so now we're going to find out. Uh, there's an, an individual study because uh, obviously Steve Jobs is not going to do market research. And they find out the market that he's targeting is actually small and uninterested. From the perspective of universities, the Next was not really a personal computer. It was a workstation. And this market was not as big, nearly as big as Jobs had assumed. So it's, this study comes out. It's called the Staples Study. It says the Staples Study concluded that given its hardware and software limitations, such as the lack of color and the unfinished operating system software, the Next Cube would not be welcoming, welcomed in the engineering and computer science departments, where workstation spending was the greatest. They had already had workstations, workstations in place that they were happy with. Um, the grandiose overestimate, overestimate of the education market was hardly new. Going back to the 1960s again, in 1966, two decades earlier, American business had rushed into expensive schemes to make a buck in education with computer-aided instruction, committing a similar error of latching upon the seemingly fat numbers in education budgets and disregarding the fact that most spending went for, went for salaries and brick-and-mortar construction. Okay, so not only is the market small and interested, the sales process process doesn't make any sense either. So it says trying to sell tens of thousands of tens of thousands of balkanized departments turned out to have absolutely nothing to do with a leveraged model. Mm. Me, uh, meaning, Steve wanted to like when you get attention from the press, he sort of leveraged for sales, right? Like, oh, the, they're going to hear about my product because the press picks it up, and then the, they'll come to us. But that's not what happens. They have to actually build this this huge uh, sales force, and they have to go to all these different de departments. And there's tens of thousands of them in the United States alone. Um, and so that's not really leverage. That's the opposite of leverage, right? So it's next faced an insurmountable problem of having to spend a lot of money dispersed across a bewilderingly, num bewilderingly number of academic fields in order to generate extremely modest sales. Uh, by the end of 1988, next employees had absorbed the news that few in higher education were willing to buy the machine. It was a shock to most people. And again, when you're lying to the public, those lies are internalized by your company employees. They believe what you're saying, and they're like, oh, what the hell's happening? Well, it's three years later. We've spent all this time in it. Why is nobody buying this machine? I thought we were great. So at this time, they make this strategic decision. Okay, well, we're not going to focus on education anymore, or not as much. We're going after businesses. So they line up with this hugely successful at the company at the time, a uh, computer company called Businessland, which is in and itself is going to be out of business in a few years. It goes from like $0 to like over a billion dollar run rate in sales in like four or five years. And then three years later, it's it's three or five years later, something like that. It gets basically sold for nothing. Um, and again, this is more unthoughtful strategy. Like you're expanding to business customers, but with academic features. Business customers need to do budgets, not calculus. So, and the business line customers were also, were also different from Next academic customers and their software requirements. They had little need of the software that was bundled with the Next Cube, which allowed them to render three-dimensional models of, of molecules or to write artificial intelligence routines and esoteric languages or to blast through Shakespeare. Um, instead, they wanted a database program. None was available. They wanted computer-aided design program. None was available. They wanted a good word processing program. Uh, none was available. Uh, they wanted a spreadsheet like Lotus 123. None was available. 
And then Business Land also has a leader that, that gets caught up in just like fairy tales because they forecast, Business Land forecasts sales of $150 million in next computers in its first year that they signed, they signed a contract to be its like exclusive distributors. And um, so they say, okay, we're going to make, we're going to do 150 million in sales just for next. This is the result. Next did not disclose to the public that the end of 1989 business land had sold a grand total of 360 next computers, 360 computers on a projection of 150 million. This was painful to absorb, especially for the next employees who had worked at Apple, which sold more than 400,000 Macintoshes in its first year after its introduction. The next fa- and then this is a problem. Remember that factory I talked about earlier? The next factory had a run rate of a fewer than 100 machines a month. Not 100,000, just plain 100. It was created to develop 100 to produce 100,000 computers a month. More than 40 now this is a, a summary of where we're at in the next history. More than 4 years after its founding, 16 months after the cube had been unveiled, nine months after announcing its partnership with Businessland, and six months after receiving the massive investment from Japanese giant Canon, the marketplace was not cooperating with the script that Steve Jobs and his associates had written for themselves. And I, I chuckled. It's really not funny. Like I couldn't imagine the heartache of being in this position if you were, like think about all the time and effort and money you put into this, and you sold 360 computers. After four years, I just, it's devastating. It's not, I don't mean, like, I'm not laughing at them. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I just couldn't imagine. Like, I wouldn't, it's heartbreaking. Um, I mean, it, it, it's their own fault. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's definitely, it would be heartbreaking. Um, more problems uh, caused by overconfidence. On the on the public record, Jobs would speak eloquently about how he liked to hire self-motivated people. So again, this is a different level. Of, I shouldn't even use the word overconfidence. This is a different level. Um, so he's saying, hey, I only hire self-motivated people. I you know, point them in the direction they need to go and get the hell out of the way. But that's not how he actually managed. In fact, Jobs could not resist doing the opposite of what he prescribed. He reserved all decisions for himself, interceding in every trivial matter. So let me give an example of that. He has a, he's walking into the next headquarters with a group. I think that might be from Businessland. Executives having a meeting about like the sales process for Apple. He, as they're walking the pathway, before they get to the front door, Jobs notices some gardeners outside of Next doing something he doesn't like. So he spends 20 minutes telling them exactly where he wants the sprinkler headers, uh, sprinkler, like the sprinklers to go, while he just make, waits, makes the executives wait. Um, again, you're not selling any computers. Those 20 minutes, probably a better idea to, to work out why, like how you could do a better job in the sales process than where the, the sprinkler is going to go. So that's what I mean about every trivial matter. That's just one example. Perhaps Jobs' behavior is best explained by his egoism. If no one was his equal, then it would be best to have all decisions made by the most competent person avail- available. That is himself. But we know that that's impossible. It's impossible for one person to have all the great ideas. He believed his grasp of all functional areas of business was so, was as sure as it was intuitive. And he saw himself as a self-taught creator of an entire industry in the same way that Henry Ford and the Wright brothers had no formal business background. Now, this is maybe one of the, arguably the craziest uh, example of his level of confidence in himself. On a hot summer day during a hike in the Stanford Hills with a fellow employee uh, that took them up to a vantage point which, from which the sprawl of Silicon Valley could be, could be glimpsed beneath the thick smog, Jobs could look out and say, in all apparent seriousness, I feel responsible for that. 
and a, uh, a, a great description by somebody that used to work at Next and then left, talked about what one of their main problems was in the sense that they would they would focus, they would over-focus on things that don't matter and not focus at all that, uh, on the things that actually do matter. And he said uh, they, they, they were doing little things down to the gnat's ass while other more important matters remained out of our control. Um, another serious flaw in, in the Steve Jobs of this era is that he, had, he took no ownership. If anything went great, it was his, his idea. He was the reason for success. If things went poorly, it was everybody else's fault. That's a, just a terrible, like no one would want to work under a person like that. So um, after nine months of really crappy sales, he decides, was it my fault for designing a product nobody wants? Nope, it's not. It's business land. They're the problem. He convinced himself that he had set up a quality organization that produced a quality computer. At the same time, he could not avoid seeing that his intended customers were not nearly as delighted and surprised as the company's mission statement said they were supposed to be, and that sales failed to take off even after the operating system was completed. So the only possible explanation left in his mind was that his new business partner, Businessland, was bungling the task of selling the machine. In the spring of 1989, Businessland had been hailed by Next as the very best of what it did. By the fall, Businessland was hopelessly incompetent, inept, incapable of selling without Next holding his hand in every way. Well, the question that naturally begs the question, like if business land is so incompetent, then why did you pick them? And what does that say about you? We'll never know the answer to that question, right? Um, so what do you do when your product is not spell is not selling? What would Steve, what did Steve Jobs of Next do at this time? Spend more frivolously, of course. Susan Barnes, which is also one of the co-founders of Next, in charge of finance, had voiced a heretical thought. Since the cube was not selling, perhaps it would be best for Next to shift back to research and development mode, pull the product from the shelves, concentrate on writing a new one, and conserve its money in the meantime. But Jobs would hear nothing of it. He felt it was best to maintain an image of success. Next, sales representatives were always dogged by questions concerning the company's viability, and Jobs sought to provide reassurance that the company was healthy and would be long-lived by spending in the manner of a healthy company. More buildings were, were leased, even though some would remain unoccupied weird decision right next own direct sales force was greatly expanded with an experienced cadre of computer salespeople um the travel and entertainment experiences are, are the travel and entertainment excesses of the staff on the road soon became legend even at next where the word excess was not in anyone's vocabulary and a single month's catering bill for the company's 24 member executive staff had come to thirteen thousand dollars a month Next, sales figures were kept secret so Jobs could point to outward appearances and say to the world, does this look like a company that's not going to be around? Eventually, Ross Perot figures out what's going on, and uh, they have a huge argument over Next having its own factory. If you create a factory that was, manu that was created to manufacture a billion dollars a year in computers, when the actual sales were in the low millions, why, like we need to dish the factory. Um, he, they, he, uh, Steve Jobs wouldn't do that. Perot winds up resigning, but he says the bad news about the failure to, to achieve profitability had to be delivered to next small board of directors, and Ross Perot did not take the news well. He interrupted the presentation. So what you're telling me is the cockpit's on fire and the plane is in a tailspin. Tell me something I don't know. Um, and then this is the inevitable outcome of a company that is not a good steward of the resources. Next should have been, it's, a, it, it's amazing that Steve Jobs was able to keep it alive and then swing it into Apple because it should have been dead many, many times. He says, uh, the company that only two years earlier had gotten an injection of $100 million from the Japanese, remember this is after $100 million from Perot too, 
uh, were once again out of money. Perot, before he left, had become extremely unhappy with the way Jobs had burned through the money, um, as if he or Cannon or another sugar daddy would always be on him to bail him out. Perot saw that paradoxically, Nex had been hurt, not helped by the generous funding it had been given because Jobs never had to learn how to stick to a budget. I shouldn't have let you guys have all that money, Perot told the next, the, uh, tell Next. This is the biggest mistake I made. He was not about to make it again, so Next could not get any more money from him. Nor could it get any more money from uh, licensing fees from IBM. The only other major part partner remaining was Canon, and it Canon was faced with an unsavory choice. It could either inject additional capital into Next, or watch its $100 million investment land in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Whether Next lives or died depended on what Canon decided to do. Another bad position to put yourself in. In too deep to shut the cashier's window closed, uh, to shut the cashier window at this point, Canon came through with $10 million and an inverted disaster. That money quickly disappeared, so another $10 million had to be put in. And I think after that, they had to lend him like another $40 million uh, after this too. So now we get to the point in the story where uh, it's evident. Uh, next computer is it's it's done. Like you 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 have to find another course. And the weirdest thing is the best decision they made um, was switching from selling hardware to just software, right? Um, but that did, decision didn't even come from Steve Jobs. He was forced into that, which is another like surprising aspect of uh, that I found out re by reading the book. And part of the reason was he, he he wouldn't believe things that were true that didn't that he didn't want to. So one of his partners, I think his name is Bud Tribble, um, Jobs resisted switching from selling hardware to software partly because he believed there's no money in selling operating systems. Uh, next was near financial collapse. Compare that with Microsoft's margins. That's what the note I left myself. It says, in this particular matter, Jobs should not have accepted Tribble's presentation of the facts. So Bud Tribble tells him, like, because people in, in the company and, and even outside the company are like, why don't you just sell me your operating system? Like, that's legitimately good. It has value. Sell it to me. And Jobs refused. He's re refusing to sell something that has huge marginal uh, uh, profits. And even though his company's near financial collapse, it's bizarre. And the point was, not only was it bizarre, but Tribble's wrong. Uh, it says, Tribble's just plain wrong. Microsoft continued to prosper from its high margin sales of the, uh, the DOS operating system and the window environment that ran between DOS and applications. In 1991, no less than 36% of Microsoft's $1.8 in revenue came from its operating system and language software. So they're selling, you know, what is that? So close to 600, 500 million, something like that in... Uh, in in operating systems it's gross margins and this is the the main point though it's gross margins in the first first quarter in fiscal 1983 were in we're 83 percent that's insane but microsoft was not the company that next would should, would best be compared to no matter how he wished uh that it uh, that it was otherwise job had no realistic hope of displacing microsoft in the op operating system business but he had a, there was somebody else they could compare to right <clears throat> And he says a more practical comparison would have been to the privately held Santana Cruz, or excuse me, not Santana, Santa Cruz operation. Now, this is very interesting. I never heard of this company before. And I was having a conversation with a friend last night because looking for like confused about like all the different opportunities. It's kind of hard, like this idea that the Internet has massively broadened the scope of careers and all kind like especially the leveraging technology, like what. There's people that you've never heard of building hugely profitable businesses and like and, and enjoying uh, like the product they make and some people even call them lifestyle businesses, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call them. But like, there's just, the, there's no limit to like the opportunities that are out there. We're just in a weird time period, a great time period. I mean, weird in the most positive way possible, but this is also like not relatively new because look at what Santa Cruz was making, uh, uh, back in the, what is this? 
late 80s, early 90s. So this is the company that the author saying, hey, you might not be able to do billions of dollars in sales like Microsoft, but there's tons of other companies that are selling operating systems and are making tons of money at this time. <clears throat> so it says, Santa Cruz Operation was a small company which sold a version of the Unix operating system to businesses that needed Unix for computers built with the same microprocessors as IBM, something that IBM wanted uh, next to do. Um, compared to Microsoft's DOS operating system, the Santa Cruz Operation Unix was not well known, but it was used by businesses. This is my point, that there's all these weird niches out there that can can lead to a very profitable, successful business. Not everybody has to build a Microsoft, but it was used by businesses that needed to write customized software for uncommonly demanding tasks and which permitted the computer user to run many se separate programs simultaneously. This was exactly what the next software excelled at. And Santa Cruz had a tiny company and they were they were generating annual revenues of $160 million only selling software at high margins. So again, if, if you're Steve Jobs and you want to be like, you know, Henry Ford, then you're not going to do that. But you know how many people would love to run a business that was doing $100 million in sales, $160 million in sales at high profit margins? Uh, so it says, but there was little uh, likelihood of high visibility and glory of the power to set standards of the mainstream computer industry, let alone likelihood of collecting billions of revenue annually like Microsoft. Uh, so to step in that direction uh, and become an obscure Santa Cruz operation, which I really find like demeaning. Like uh, I don't think that's again. Like there's only going to be a handful of of huge companies. Let's say you have a, a generate like there's generations of those, right? It's a tiny bit, handful, maybe a couple handfuls, whatever it is. Like there's just what I'm saying is like the opportunity to do that is a lot smaller than the opportunity to build you know 100 million or 200 million or whatever the number is. Like the Santa Cruz level level business is what I'm saying, which are still hugely successful. Um, but for Jobs, it's like he calls it the obscure Santa Cruz operation. Would, oh, he's not calling it, but this is the author describing like his, what his opinion would have been. Uh, would be to acknowledge that next would remain marginal, not in a business sense, but in a historic sense. I guess that's a better way to, to frame it. So he, they're not marginal in business sense. It's hugely successful, but in a historic sense, you know, most people never hear them. Um, again, I just think optimizing for to go down in history is like I mean Steve Jobs clearly did uh, optimize for that and it wound up working out for him but that's such a like a, a tiny percentage like you don't want to we only have one life I wouldn't waste it like what okay so what I'm saying is like if you set that as your life goal what happens when you don't hit it you're just gonna look back at your your one life you have the one experience you have on this planet as like a like a waste like a regret like I would just would never set myself up like that that just doesn't make it seem to me make much sense so anyways <clears throat> eventually because he's running out of money and he's getting pressure internally and externally they the most important this is a, a fascinating decision or a fascinating idea the most important decision about the fate of next didn't even come from steve jobs now this was the right decision you could argue maybe years late but definitely the right decision and i just I, it was amazing to me that it did not come from steve jobs he would have to be pulled forcefully into to ditching hardware and going to software. It says it took six full months of campaigning, including the appeals of Intel's Andy Grove from the outside and the continued lobbying by lower uh, level Next employees on the inside before Jobs capitulated in the summer of 1991 and gave his blessing. It was not appreciated at the time, but it would turn out to be arguably the single most important decision that Jobs had made at Next, even though he didn't really make it. As sales of Next owned hardware plummeted that summer and sputtered through the fall and onto uh, fall and into uh, uh, in the, so the fall of 1992, sorry. Next hopes of a reprieve from oblivion shifted increasingly, later desperately, to the Intel project, which is doing software. 
Um, and so that's where the book actually ends. And I could see why Randall was a little harsh on Jobs, even though I think we can learn from that. Um, because, you know, the book goes to publishing in 1983. And at this point, Next is a colossal failure. Um, so it, it kind of, I guess those kind of constraints limiting, ne the, just like I thought it was it was beneficial to limit the history uh, in Michael Moritz's book to the, you know, that seven year window or whatever it is of the beginning of Apple and what happens when you have a huge successful product. I think it was equally as important to do so on literally the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm holding the Michael Moritz book in my left hand and the the Steve Jobs and the next big thing in my right hand, and they're literally on opposite ends of the spectrum. That's why I would read them both, because um, it's 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 fascinating to me. But I do want to end on a positive note, because <clears throat> this is uh, my favorite thing from Steve Jobs that that Steve Jobs said in the book, um, and it says he's he's at a he's on a panel like this at this like conference, and they're talking about the computer industry. This is the early 90s. And it says, Jobs, at the, as the house philosopher for the, for the personal computer industry, the one who made everyone feel fortunate to be working in a historically significant, significant moment. And so this is what he says. He talks about, like, why is working in the, um, the computer industry a, like, why should we feel for? I like this perspective, by the way, feeling fortunate. Like, I feel the same way that I've said before. Like, we're really, really lucky, especially for introverted people like myself and I'm sure a lot of you. Um, to being alive and, and introverted and curious and, and wanting to learn, like there could not be another more beneficial um, invention than the internet for that, right? And that's why I feel like we're really, really lucky to be alive in, in this time. And being born 30 years early, like 30 years, if we were born, let's say, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, like it's, it's a completely different life. And that's a very small time in the in the grand scheme of like how long humans have been alive. So anyways, um, He's saying, listen, feel fortunate to be working in a historical significant moment. And I love this, this, this comparison that he does here. He says, the petrochemical revolution of 100 years ago freed mechanical energy, Jobs had said. The information revolution, just begun, frees intellectual energy and will dwarf the petrochemical revolution in its impact. I think that's a, a beautiful thought. I don't think it's done that yet probably will in the future um but I, this is something you know he's he said this back in the 90s which is uh like very prescient is that the word i'm looking for like the idea that that he internalized this and was able to comprehend this at such a uh, at such an early time relative to the time we're living now is rather impressive so that's where i'll leave the story i can't recommend enough i think it's really important to study this i buy both the books if you want to support the podcast my work uh, at the same time. I'll leave a link in the show notes like I do for everything or you can go to founderspodcast.com and you can obviously get everything there but um, you can, or you can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash founders podcast. That's where I put every single book uh, that I do for the podcast. If you buy through that link, Amazon sends me a small percentage of the sale, no additional cost to you. It's a great way to support yourself and the author and me. Um, so you support yourself by getting a, a great book to read. You support the author by buying their work because they spent a lot of time doing this. And then you support me because Amazon sends me a small percentage of the sale. And hopefully I made you aware of the book and everything uh, and some of the interesting things. And keep in mind, like, so I own the, um, I owned the hardcover of this book, which is really interesting because I got a used copy off of, I couldn't find any new copies on, um, on, uh, on Amazon. And I also own the Kindle version. And just to give you an idea of like that, 
and every single podcast I do, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you about the, these are basically my think about is like my notes and highlights is a tiny percent. I think I've been talking for like an hour and a half or something like that. Um, and when I exported all my notes and highlights out of the Kindle version, five percent, <laughs> like it's such a tiny percentage. There's just so much information like in, in this book that it can't and all the books. Um, so it's, it, I guess my, my point is like, I've, um, found a lot of good books through podcasts. And usually when I, when I listen to a podcast and I, and I'm, and I like the podcast and I wind up buying the book that the podcast is based on, I usually, and I think it's a good proxy to determine if you're going to like the book or not, I guess is my point. Um, so yeah, pick that up, buy as many as you want. I've been get, like, it, it, I basically only give books as like, if I buy somebody a gift, I'm very bad at giving gifts <laughs> outside of like for my daughter and wife. But like friends, family members, they know like Christmas time, your birthday, whatever, I'm giving you books. I just think it's like the, and usually books I've read, no, almost always books I've read. So like, I don't know. I, I think that's a, uh, it's like the best thing to give somebody. It's like, Hey, I spent, you know, 10 hours reading this. I really enjoyed it. I thought of you for some specific reason. So if you have anybody in your life that you want to give gifts to buy books, and if you can buy them from um, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash founders podcast. If you've gotten this far and you have not signed up for the Misfit feed, you're missing out on half of my podcasts. Um, I don't have ads in this podcast, so that means I rely um, on the support of the people that learn from my work, they get value from my work. And the best way to support my work is just sign up for the Misfit feed. You'll get two additional podcasts every month from me, including the two free ones that I could do. Obviously, the people that sign up for the Misfits are allow me to dedicate the time to do the free ones. Um, so in a sense, like you're getting two that no one else gets, but you also get all the free, you make it the free ones available for everyone else. Um, and that's the best way to do it. It takes, I leave the, the link in the show notes. You can open it up on your podcast player, 10 to 20 seconds. You don't even have to put in your credit card number. You can do Apple pay super fast. The software program I use will automatically generate a, the, the private feed and automatically install it into your podcast player of choice. You can be listening to all the misfit feed podcasts in 20 seconds from now. Um, so please do that if you get value from my work and uh, you want to see this project continue. That's the best way. The more people sign up, the the, the more the opportunity cost of doing the podcast is basically eliminated. Um, so if, God forbid, you're scared that this podcast would disappear one day, best way to avoid doing that is to tell your friends, sign up for the Misfit Feed and then tell your friends to listen as well. I would greatly appreciate it. Um, what else do I need to talk about? So we talked about Misfit. We talked about buying books on the, the link. Oh, so I haven't talked about this in a, in, in a little while. Um, if you, I don't, I, I'm so confusing. Um, okay, so <clears throat> I have all these different podcast feeds, don't I? I have a Misfit feed. I have the the main feed, the one you're listening to now. I also have a reviewer only feed. So for the life of me, I don't understand why. You know, I've been obsessed with podcasts for ten plus years. Every almost all of the uh, podcast hosts will be like, "Hey, please rate and review," because it does actually help. What I never understood is like, so a lot of people leave reviews and recommendations because they want to, but like, why don't you, we know from studying human nature, from studying business, from studying history that like humans are governed by incentives. So why don't other podcasts further incentivize you for doing that, you know? Um, and so my idea was like, hey, why don't I just make a private podcast feed? I'm not going to sell it. I'm not going to give it away for uh, to, to, for everybody either. Um, and it's for people that are willing to leave a review. And so if you, like, let's say you're listening to, most people live, listen to two podcasts, like 90 something percent of the people listen to founders do it on either Overcast or, or Apple Podcasts, right? There's other ones you can do this on, but let's say for, for Overcast, Overcast doesn't have a review function, right? Um, but it does have 
a recommend function. And it's uh, when you're listening to this, you see that the on your on your podcast on the screen, you'll see like a little star. Once you tap that star, that means you're recommending this individual episode. So you tap the star, it turns gold. Take a screenshot of that, email it to me at foundersreviews at gmail.com and I will reply back with a private podcast feed. I have seven other podcasts that are available nowhere else. They're only available for people that are willing to take a minute or two out of their day to help me out. Um, and what happens is, you know, you recommend that Overcast will show that to more people. That that helps the podcast grow, which is sensibly if you don't want this podcast to disappear, you want to help grow, right? Um, the other way, if, you, if you're listening on, you know, other other um, podcast apps like Apple Podcasts where you can leave a review. Leave a review, take a screenshot, email it to me. I'll send it, send you that link as well with instructions on how to add it to your Apple Podcast player. Uh, you can do it really, really fast. So anyways, I'm asking you to do this because it, it really does help out. Um, it helps other people find it. It's also the people that actually leave detailed reviews gives me a good like indication of, um, like I have an idea of what I'm doing here, but seeing how you interpret it, it is also really helpful, I guess, and how I think about it. I'm losing my voice. Um, if you haven't already, join my private email list. Or you can just go to David's David's Notes at uh, David's Notes Substack.com, or just click the link, enter in the email address. The email address is free, or the email list is free. Um, I'm doing an audio version now. If you want me to read my notes to you instead of uh, read it yourself, you can upgrade, um, and then that actually turns into like this weird like mini podcast thing. I don't know. Um, it people seem to like that a lot more. They like the idea of me reading to them than them having to do it. And I kind of like that too. If I can get more information audibly, uh, where I can do other things, I definitely would, would, I'm doing that because I would want that as well. I guess is what I'm saying. Like that just makes more sense. It makes, it makes sense why people have said that they like it better this way. Cause I also like it better that way too. All right. Well, anyways, I've talked enough. I need to figure out what I'm reading for the next week and I need to get on that as soon as possible so we can keep this train running. Thank you very much for support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling your friends. Um, I guess that's it. I'll talk to you next week.